0: Lord Jesus, please help us now to come to you. Put your spirit amongst us. Work in our hearts. Show us yourself in your word. Help us to see you clearly. Prompt us to to change where we need to, to, to take hope and encouragement where we need to. Show us yourself. Show us ourselves. Please help me to speak well. Show me the right words. Let your kingdom be served tonight. Amen. Um, We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, starting sort of halfway through a little passage. Um, But forgive me for that. So Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Let me read that. It's on page 1013 in the Church Bibles. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung round their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves, and be at peace with each other. It's is a fun little passage, isn't it? That doesn't this model everything that's seen as wrong with Christianity and organized religion? It is so bleakly uncompromising, and joylessly hung up on sin, and inflexible people will say isn't it absurd to imagine that a bunch of guys thousands of years ago could hope to codify human behaviour and morality clearly enough that they should be able to set down such concrete rules that we living now in utterly different cultures and times knowing so much more should be expected to figuratively mutilate ourselves and give up the stuff that these guys didn't approve of, to walk away from things that we might otherwise have put at the heart of our lives, key to our satisfaction and our identities. To the current Western mind, the, the fundamentalist understanding of passages like this and of what it means to live a righteous life That understanding seems narrow, blinkered, blind to the moral ambiguities of more sophisticated thought. It's too uncompromising, it's too black and white, it's blind to all the shades of grey of people's lifestyle choices. Do you recognise that? Does that resonate with opinions you hear expressed by friends or family or colleagues or the media do you Do you recognize it in your own reactions to that passage at first reading as well? Do you find yourself shocked by the language by the brutal response that Jesus advocates or the the talk of hell do you find yourself thinking that Yeah, there's there's probably a true idea underneath that. But day-to-day life's more complex and subtle, so we need to be careful how we apply this. It's too black and white, isn't it? What about all the blurred lines and the grayscale values of modern Christian life? I think that reaction's not surprising. I think that's what's going on in this section of Mark's Gospel. I think this passage and others like it are meant to shake us I suspect they they shook the disciples to their cause. But I think as well it's anything but blinkered or narrow or blind. If this passage describes a surprisingly high contrast, a a sharply defined binary (coughs) world, that's because it's being lit properly. There's no convenient shadows or mood lighting. So let's think here about what things look like when you see them clearly and properly lit. Think of the comparison between the carefully chosen marketing images in an estate agent's window, or that glitzy product on the internet, or the, uh, this might not get you, but the beautiful burger in the picture above the kebab shop counter. And then compare it to your your first impression of that house as you see it in unflattering daylight. (coughs) Or the flimsy plastic gadget that comes through the post. Or, burger's too strong a word, the thing that gets handed over the counter in a scrap of paper under the harsh kitchen light. Much like in here, actually. Uh, When you see it clearly, that tempting ambiguity is gone and it is not so attractive. In the same way here, if we see Jesus clearly, the transfigured Jesus of chapter 9, verses 1 to 13, the Jesus of verse 31, who dies and rises again, then like blind people whose eyes have been opened, the world will look very different. What was once attractive will lose its glamour. Our choices and our lives will take on completely different hues. So, my plan is first, I'm going to try and fit this passage into the context of Mark's Gospel. Then, I want to look at what it's saying and why it's so uncompromising. And then, we'll think about how it applies to us, which will be the tough bit. So, first up, the context of Mark's Gospel. Do you remember the little toolkit of questions that Dan suggested to us at the start of this book? In the first half, it's mostly, who is Jesus? In the second half, it's mostly, what did Jesus come to do? And all the way through, snippets like this of how can we respond. I think the segment that we're in now basically runs from halfway through chapter 8, so 8 verse 31, through to the end of chapter 10. And essentially Mark wraps up here who is Jesus and he cracks into what has Jesus come to do. A few weeks ago, Jerson spoke to us about the state of this, uh, about the start of this section in 8 verses um, 31 to 33. Is that right? No. Sorry, it's earlier than that. Um, 8 verses 22 to 26. And there's this weird miracle seems to not work straight away. Jesus heals this blind man in two stages. First he was blind. Then he could see a bit, blurrily but not clear. And finally his eyes are opened. It seems to be a metaphor for the next few chapters. As the reality of what Jesus is all about gets more and more clear. And and light is shone. Onto the situation, the truth of what it means to be a disciple is laid bare. So, three times in these chapters, Jesus says, I am going to die. In 8, verse 31, 9, verse 31, and then 10, 33, and 34. And each time, the disciples, and especially Peter, James, and John, the 3 who've got the clearest insight into who he is, that the ones who saw the transfiguration, who saw the veil lifted, saw Jesus as God's beloved son, each time they struggle to understand it. They get it wrong. Magnificently so. And and Jesus then teaches them. He sheds light. He shows them the stark reality of what it means to be a disciple. So, Peter says, no, no, Jesus, you can't die. And Jesus comes back with anyone who follows me must deny themselves and take up their cross and face suffering and death. If you're ashamed of doing that, me, I'll I'll be ashamed of you. And in chapter 9, just before our passage today, John says in verse 38, we stopped this guy from using your name because he wasn't one of us. And Jesus says, no, no, look, no one can do miracles in my name and turn around and badmouth me afterwards. In fact, he says, I'm fiercely protective of my people. Anyone who's even slightly nice to you, they'll be rewarded. Anyone who damages you, at the start of our passage today, verse 42, they'd better look out. And then he goes on through this to say, look, if you're going to follow me, Just make sure you're making the right choices. The consequences are huge. Make sure you're like salt. More of that later. And then the third time, in 10 verses 35 to 45, he says, If you're going to follow me, you'll drink from my cup. You'll share in my baptism. That means suffering and the cross and death. My disciples, he says, are the ones who are going to serve. They'll become slaves to others, just like their master. And this little segment then gets rounded off nicely. There's another blind man who receives his sight back at the end of chapter 10. And he follows Jesus along the road. All through this section then, Mark and Jesus are making this claim that it's not a blinkered and uncompromising view, it's not blind fundamentalism. Rather, if you see Jesus clearly, if you know him, if you understand what he came to do, then you'll be left seeing the world in, in starker terms. Those comfortable, ambiguous shades of grey that we like to shelter in, those, those are just an illusion you have if you don't know what's really going on, or don't want to accept it. So what's going on here in this little snippet? Why is it so uncompromising? I think it's hard for us because there were two realities that Jesus assumes which in our day-to-day lives we just don't acknowledge or, or seem to believe. Jesus speaks frankly about the kingdom of God and about hell. It's two real things. There's no common ground between them and, and there's nothing that lies in between them. See, if Peter was right back in chapter 8 verse 29 when he acknowledged Jesus as Messiah. And if Peter, James and John saw clearly in 9 verses 2 to 7 when Jesus is transfigured revealed as dazzlingly pure and holy attended by Moses and Elijah the beloved son of God if if that's right it follows that the kingdom of God is real. Because the sovereign creator of the universe, he will have his way. His rule will be confirmed. His enemies will be defeated. His righteousness will be established in a promised land that will put Israel to shame. And again and again through this, Jesus is saying to them that his whole purpose as the Son of Man is to be a ransom to open a way for disciples to share in that kingdom. To see Jesus truly as he is, is to know with confidence that that will happen. The kingdom of God's real. It's a real destination for his disciples. It's glorious. But if that's true, then it must also be true that there's an alternative. Because our God is a consuming fire, And he will not suffer evil to exist. And he is holy. And so he will not allow impurity or wrong into his presence. And he's just. So he will not allow rejection of him to go unpunished. His kingdom won't be marred or spoiled. so those who are not Christ's disciples will not enter in and that's difficult isn't it because we we don't want to think of our family or our friends in those terms that's painful we don't want to apply sharp absolute divisions to the world it it feels arrogant out of touch we don't want to open that can of worms we don't want to open our eyes and And look at the compromises in our lives, in those categories, because it could only require change. And that hurts. But to put it simply, we can't see Jesus clearly, as being the biblical Messiah, as being the cherished Son of God, and not also see clearly that those who steadfastly choose not to follow him will one day face judgment and wrath. Jesus and the Bible speak of hell. I don't know what it's like. We could discuss different theories of hell until the cows come home. It wouldn't be helpful. I don't know the details of it, but I know the general picture. It is not the petty vengeance of a cosmic tide. It's not temporary. It's not the cheeky red demons with pitchforks. It's infinitely worse. It is the just judgment of a holy God on those who, like me, have no excuse for corrupt and despicable actions. It is to be utterly and irrevocably cut off from the one who is the source of all good things. And all life. And it's awful. To see this Jesus clearly in all his holiness is to recognise with only a little introspection that this hell is also the proper destination for each of us. It's the bizarre, staggering wonder of the Bible's narrative that God would go to such lengths to ransom us back for his kingdom. But here Jesus chose just to speak of it as a simple binary choice. To be his disciple is to choose to live for the kingdom of God and to reject and run from and cut off at all costs Anything that will keep you from it. If we don't see the world in such stark categories as that, then I bet you, 10 to 1, it's because we don't have our eyes full of Jesus. It's because his light isn't revealing the reality around us. Maybe like in Mark 4, we, we brought in the bit of the message that suits us, but the rest is hidden like a lamp under a bowl, not illuminating our lives, not showing the full contrast of our choices. If there are delights in the world, things that we treasure in, whether they are innocent or guilty, if there are things that we couldn't imagine cutting off, walking away from, leaving behind, then I bet 10 to 1 it's because we don't grasp the glory of Christ's kingdom deeply. You find yourself again and again going into that situation where that temptation gets you, stumbling yet again as honestly we knew we would. I bet it's because we don't have a clear grasp of the deep value of the gospel. The Son of Man, the pure, spotless Lamb of God, the mighty Prince of Creation, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather humbled himself. He delivered himself into human hands so that he could be killed on a cross. Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God a ransom for sins, such a rich image, isn't it? If I fix my eyes on that image, if I fix my eyes on him, if I see Jesus clearly, then verses 42, 3 to 47, they're not outdated fundamentalism. They're just good sense. Because if I see him clearly, everything else will pale in comparison. I'll see my stumbling blocks as what they are, crude and unsatisfying traps. C.S. Lewis described it as mud pies as compared to the glory of the beach. The things that trip me up, that, that I long for, are utterly incomparable and often completely incompatible with knowing Jesus. I think that's what's going on here. I should probably stop for a moment and say explicitly this is not a gateway for legalism and self-righteousness. The message here is not be good and go to heaven or be bad and go to hell. This is not a call to follow rules of any given church or, or even the Ten Commandments or, or the Old Testament law or any elder, even Dan. It's actually dangerous to advocate rules, whether it's of dressing certain ways or of abstaining from certain food or drink or keeping the Sabbath or avoiding dancing or certain films, whatever it is. It's dangerous because we can't kid ourselves that we can live in a righteous way and earn our way to safety. That's not the message here. No church leader, no preacher is in a position to command us to obey any rule in order to reach heaven. That would be utter hypocrisy, because we're all in the same boat. If you could just hear my thoughts for a day, you'd be irrevocably convinced of that. Now it's only by Christ's death and resurrection that we can enter the kingdom of God. It's a free gift. The message here is to take hold of that gift to value it more than anything else, to be uncompromising, to not let anything get in its way, even if by normal standards that seems to cripple us. It's about seeing clearly, in the light of Jesus, the true value of what's on offer. So an obvious example is a Christian's attitude to sex. I remember an old friend of mine, he's known me since I was 13. He had known that I was a Christian for years, but he was still shocked. And then sort of morbidly horrified and fascinated when he realised in the months before our wedding that I hadn't slept with my fiancé. Why would you do that? Why would you limit yourself in that way? Why would you mutilate yourself by cutting out that vital aspect of your life? Of course, most of the time, for most of us, the honest answer is that it's because we're trying to be righteous and follow the rules. But the good reason is that Jesus is wonderful. And if I've got my eyes full of him why would I want to play around with a false promise of gratification? If I can see Jesus clearly, why would I want to mess with something that I know is not his plan for me? Something that I know risks distracting me and turning my eyes away from him. It's better to be maimed in my friend's eyes, and admittedly in my own a lot of the time, than it is to end up tangled around with thorns and lose sight of Jesus. That's why we say keep sex for its proper place. For marriage, where it's a picture of our relationship with him. That's an obvious example, but clearly we're being called here to think more broadly. Look at verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Verse 45. If your foot causes you to stumble... Cut it off. Verse 47, this is the one that gets me. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Do you see how general that is? It's the stuff that we do, it's the places we go to, it's the things that we look at. Or it's the things that we grasp or run after or dream about. Sometimes they're good, often they're not. But if they cause you to stumble, steer well, clear. Christians, you've got a higher priority. And there are great risks. Remember, Jesus said, on on the last day there'll be plenty who say, Lord, Lord. Who'll claim that they followed him and he'll just say, "I, I don't know you. Remember the parable of the sower. There'll be plenty of people who start along the route of following Jesus but dry up and wither or get choked off by the concerns of this life. There'll be sheep and goats and he will separate his flock. Take it seriously. Assess the dangers to you and flee from them. Clean to Jesus. What compromise. I think obviously if we think this through, it's going to be painfully challenging. So before we go down that route, let me point out two encouragements here in this passage. First, it is not up to the disciples to use their remaining hand, foot and eye to limp into heaven. That would be a weird bit of teaching. It's not up to them to live perfectly. Notice in in 43, 45, and 47, Jesus assumes that they're stumbling. To be a Christian is to keep sinning. In fact, normally it's to be more conscious of your sin than before. And it's by the grace of Jesus, it's by the sanctifying work of his Spirit that we're made conscious of our sin, that we're cleansed, that we're forgiven and healed and ultimately changed and transformed. It's only by grace the disciples will be able to follow this. It's only by Christ's power that we'll be able to change too. But that power is freely and abundantly poured out on all who repent and ask for it. Grace. Is yours. Second encouragement, 49 and 50, these funny verses. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. I think that last bit is wrapping up, actually, his response to John in verse 38. John wanted to stop this guy. And Jesus says, no, don't, don't argue with other believers in Christ's name. They're set apart just like you, John. They're salt too. Live at peace with them. Don't don't cause them to stumble, stumble or stumble yourself because of them. But that first bit, verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. It's a reminder that the challenges and the stumbling and the bitter failures and disappointment with themselves and the opposition that these disciples are going to face, that's all part of the plan. That's the salting. That's disciples learning what it is to follow Jesus. And feeling what it is to be set apart from the world, to be made holy, to share his cup and his baptism. See, salt adds savour and flavour and richness to food. But more importantly in these times, it, it stops the rot. It preserves. It kills bacteria. It keeps food clean and ready to use. will be salted. By fire. It's often by the bitter struggle against temptation, with all of our failures and our frustrated desire for change. It's often then that Christians are salted and grown in imitation of Jesus. Struggle's not without purpose. So, okay, how to apply this to us? A little later, we'll have some prayer time to think it over individually. But I'll share a few thoughts. I... I don't think there is a set rule that applies to everyone. I'm sure that the wise course of action varies from person to person and culture to culture. One person might find that going to the pub with work friends is a fruitful time of witness and evangelism. Another might experience it as a dreadful stumbling block. The instruction here is to be self-aware. To actively seek change where it's needed. I'd imagine that we've each got a fairly clear idea of at least some of our stumbling blocks if you're not sure then a fair rule of thumb is it's the thing that you don't want to let go of I think if we want to examine ourselves that the structure of verses 43 to 47 is useful hand, foot and eye what are the things I do which leave me at the mercy of temptation leave me open where are the places I go to, where I tend to end up putting Jesus in the back seat? What are the things I fix my eyes on, which replace him as an idol in my mind? Some thoughts: Is it my pride that trips me up again and again into bigging myself up and putting others down? And sets me fuming and raging inside when I'm not respected or I don't get my way. Does, does that need to be mortified? Is it my compulsion to fit in, to be one of the in crowd, liked and popular? Does that leave me compromising my faith, failing to stand up as a Christian, ashamed of Jesus? Is it wise for me to go to the pub with that group of people from work? How does it tend to end up? Do I honour Jesus' name or do I stumble? How's my relationship with alcohol generally? Do I need to limit myself? Or even cut it out? Do I stumble when I go to the internet? There are so many dangers there. It's pornography, of course, but what about shopping sites and gambling sites and investment sites? Is money a stumbling block for me then? What about social networks or gossip or news or envy or image? Is it my idea of freedom and free time that leaves me unwilling to give myself to the church as a servant or to my neighbours as a witness? What are the things which, if I only saw Jesus clearly, if only I truly believed the message of His holiness and goodness, what are things that I would never imagine trying to unite with Him? <coughs> what are things I need to nail to the cross and live without so that I can take hold of His promise? There will never come a time in our Christian lives when we don't need to ask those questions. There'll be seasons of particular struggle. There'll be times when it's easier, I'm sure. But everyone gets salted with fire. The good news is that the solution's the same as the source of our problem. We need to see Jesus clearly so that we can see our need to change. But also so that we can see our Saviour. We need to be nourished daily by the Bible. By prayer, by fellowship with our brothers and sisters. Because it's when we look at Jesus, when we talk to him and read of him, when we come into contact with his character in church or in other Christians, that's when we get the clear light shone on our need to change. That's also where we get the solution made clear, going back to 9, verse 31. He is the Son of Man, who died as a ransom for sins, but rose again, a firstfruits among the dead, holding out a guarantee of life for us.